0: Thank you, Clark. Um, It's great to be um, back here at this glorious church. Um, Clark called me up a few months ago. He said, you know, it's going to be the start of a new year. People are going to be optimistic. Uh, They're going to be looking forward to 2016. Let's talk about cyber war. (laughs) I said, sure, Clark, no problem. (laughs) Um, But uh, the last time I was here, uh, which was a few years ago, I think we talked about the range of problems that were facing the United States and on President Obama's uh, plate as the second term started up. I think Confront and Conceal had just come out, which was a a book that looked really at at what the president had done in the first term and his effort to move us from a uh, a world in which we were wrapped up in two uh, big conflicts, Iraq and Afghanistan, and trying to move us to what he called the light footprint, which was to try to find a way to be able to exercise American power, but do it without dropping large numbers of troops uh, onto the ground and try to change societies over years and years and discover along the way you were building up a lot of resentments there. Um, The light footprint strategy had three big elements uh, to it, for those of you who... um, I've had better things to think about in the uh, years since I was last here. One of them was the use of special forces, move in and out very quickly. Another was the use of drones, something the president used very heavily in the first term has not been as reliant on in the second term. And the third element, and the most fascinating one, because it's the one the government talks the least about, uh, was cyber. And when we talk about cyber, at least for the purposes of this conversation. Um, let's set aside for a moment the part that you all have to worry about the most when you wake up in the morning, which is you know, whether or not um, Target or Home Depot or the Social Security Administration, or since this is a Washington um, audience, OPM, Uh, have managed to lose all of your personal data for the course of the day and, you know, given backup copies to the Chinese or something like that. Um, Those are fascinating problems, and the OPM one particularly fascinating because we don't think they were taking it for your credit card numbers. Um, But let's set that aside for a moment as something of a less interesting law enforcement kind of problem, something where we've all got to worry about having the best practices, but basically locking it up the way you would lock up your house and your car. Instead, what I spend most of my time thinking about in these terms is the question of what cyber is doing as we think about how a technology can fundamentally change the way states deal with each other, the way we express national power, our vulnerabilities, So basically, for the purposes of today, I want to talk about how states use cyber, not how criminals do, not even really how spies might, um, certainly not how hackers sitting in a basement might, but rather what states are doing. And that's where there's been the biggest change, I think, since I was here last. Because when I was here last, the operation that confront and conceal opens with, which was um, Leon Panetta when he was the head of the CIA and others going down into the Situation Room a a block away and explaining to the president and the vice president that the most secret uh, program that they had had going for years on end, a fascinating uh, program called Olympic Games that uh, had been the code name for the attacks on Iran's nuclear facilities, had gone awry, not because of anything other than a mistake, a plain old mistake, in which the code with which they were attacking the uh, centrifuges deep underground in, in Iran had gotten out. And suddenly there were copies of it being replicated all around the world. And by the time Leon made it down into the Situation Room, there were probably hundreds, tens or hundreds of thousands of copies of this code all around the world for people to dissect. And what they saw, essentially, was the blueprint of a weapon that the United States and Israel had spent years and millions of dollars putting together. At the time that I wrote that, It was hard to find many other examples in which a state had used cyber to try to do what previously you could only do with sabotage or an air attack. In other words, not just an attack computer on computer, but using computers to try to disable a whole piece of infrastructure in a country what we fear about when you hear all the worries about what could happen to our utility system or the cell phone network or any of the other systems that could be uh, attacked by, by someone else. And of course, in this case, the most sophisticated attack began with us. But I'm not sure that it began with a full plan yet of how you would make Something like this fit into a broader strategic context. In fact, usually in American history, we develop the weapon first and come up with the strategy second. It's just our way. Um, and so before we delve too much into cyber itself, let me take you back just about not quite 110 years here in this town to another set of events that give us a good analogy for thinking about this. So in um, in, th- in, in uh, 1908, uh, the Wright brothers, having already tested their airplane some and been running it for a few years after Kitty Hawk, decided that they would show it off to the U.S. military. At first they wanted to go do it over at Fort Myer, but it seemed a little bit too close into the city and was making everybody nervous. So they went up to College Park, and those of you who've been up there and gone by that little museum of aviation that uh, is up by the the university there, know that they actually did their demonstration for Washington out on the fields that are up being used now uh, by the students at the college. And um, I'm sorry, we're not quite set up here in this beautiful setup for PowerPoint and the like. I have some really fun photographs of Wilbur and Orville kicking around um, College Park. But they put their biplane uh, up in the air, they had a bunch of generals looking around at it, and the first thing the generals said was, this is really neat. I can't really think of an application in which this might help us, but it's really interesting. And then a few of them said, well, you know, I could imagine using it for surveillance. You know, we could you could go up, and instead of sending scouts out ahead of the line, you could send none of these airplanes out. We'd understand where troops were massing. They'd come back and report, and that would help us out a lot. A little bit of a failure of imagination, right? So that was 1908. Within a decade, uh, you know, the Red Baron was up. You were beginning to have... Uh, uh, the, the early uh, air battles of World War I. Uh, within 40 years, we had a huge air force that made the difference in World War II, and we combined it with another technology, the atomic bomb, and used it to drop the bombs that ended World War II uh, in Japan. That was a span of just about 40 years. At the time that Orville and Wilbur were doing those tests, no one was thinking of an atomic weapon, obviously, but no one was even thinking of using the um, airplane as a weapon. So, let's move this forward to where we are in the cyber world. We're somewhere between 1908 and that World War I use. A lot of people think about cyber in terms of espionage. Certainly, we've seen a lot of that happen. The Chinese, by and large, have used cyber as a way to steal uh, intellectual property. Or in the case of OPM, as we talked about before, get those very detailed security clearance files that tell you about everybody's health history and tell you about where they worked and tell you about who they were married to and who they used to be married to, and all kinds of personal detail that you could imagine could be pretty useful to any kind of of intelligence officers. But what's been going on in the interim, really in those three or four years since Olympic Games, is that we've begun to see states make use of cyber for many other offensive purposes. We saw the Iranians turn around and and attack the computer systems of Saudi Aramco, their great rival, Saudi Arabia. And after the events of last week, no one would be shocked if you saw more cyber conflict between Iran and Saudi Arabia. We saw North Korea. Attack South Korea, and then a year ago, almost exactly right now, a year and a few weeks, execute what may have been one of the strangest cyber attacks we could ever imagine. Wasn't against a government, wasn't against our water systems or our utility systems or our phone systems. Instead, Kim Jong-un got very unhappy about a movie that Sony Pictures Entertainment was bringing out called The Interview. If you haven't seen it yet, let me save you some time. It's a truly terrible movie. (laughs) And as a friend of mine in the State Department put it to me after um, uh, this whole set of incidents played out, if 100 years from now some historian comes back and asks the question, what started the war between the United States and North Korea, and somebody started playing this movie, you'd probably find a lot of sympathy for the North Koreans. (laughs) But what happened in this case was that um, the leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, grandson of the country's founder, um, the man who uh, earlier this week uh, was claiming to have set off a hydrogen bomb that wasn't, Decided that he needed to stop this movie, which basically was a great parody of him. It's a really bad tale of uh, two crazy guys who uh, are sent off to interview him, and the CIA is supposed to go hire them to go assassinate Kim Jong-un. It's truly in bad taste. Um, But uh, he did what he could to stop the movie. So he did the first thing he could think of which was that North Korea wrote a letter to the Secretary General of the United Nations asking him to stop the movie, because as we all know, the Secretary General of the United Nations has such great influence in Hollywood. Um, that didn't work predictably. Uh, and in um, the fall of uh, 2014, in around September, um, a group that was organized by the North Koreans broke into the computer systems of Sony Pictures Entertainment in Hollywood. But did they immediately attack it? No. They sat in the system for a couple of months. They mapped it out. They did really good surveillance to understand what it controlled and what it didn't control. They were patient. They stole a whole bunch of emails, eventually you read some of those. But the emails in some ways were a distraction, because fascinating as it is to read accounts of Hollywood executives maintaining that Angelina Jolie is a spoiled brat, that wasn't really the key element of what the North Koreans were doing. They were inside the system to map it out and figure out how to destroy it exactly the way the United States might map out a city or an enemy set of um, military facilities to plan for the day when they needed to make that go away. And just before Thanksgiving, a year ago in uh, 2014, they unleashed the weapon and people who came in to work that day at Sony discovered that their hard drives were just melting down. The mistake the North Koreans made was that they couldn't resist boasting about it, so they had these big pictures that showed up on the screens of the head of um, Sony Pictures Entertainment, another classmate of Clark's and mine, in somewhat gruesome poses, Uh, and that alerted people that they'd been infected, and the smartest ones among them reached behind their desks and actually unplugged their computers, which was the one thing that sort of saved them from complete destruction. But by the time they were all done with that morning, 70% of Sony's computer systems had been wiped out, gone, useless. They actually went down into the basement and found one of those old machines that print paychecks so that they could go and actually pay everybody at Sony Pictures for the next couple of weeks because their automated payroll system was completely gone. The most amazing thing was they still had that thing down in the basement. That was just a small sign of what you can do. And what you can do may not in the future be the attack that takes place on the utilities or the cell phone system or whatever, because that kind of attack would be so large that you could imagine it bringing about a military response from the United States. In fact, do this thought experiment. If North Korea had not attacked Sony by melting down their hard drives, but instead had sent a bunch of airplanes in and somehow managed to pierce America's air defenses and bombed the studio and gotten basically the same effect of knocking out their systems, we would consider it an act of war. But they did it subtly enough and in a way that was so hard to trace that the president said in the end he thought it was more like cyber vandalism. Well, I don't think it was an act of war, but I think it tells you about something you can do that's much more than just vandalism, because you can imagine this writ large on any number of other American companies, on the stock markets and so forth, where you could conduct a short-of-war attack that's hard to trace back. Now, that's part of what makes cyber so different strategically than everything that we have thought about as we grew up in the Cold War and the post-Cold War period. The Cold War had this sort of remarkable simplicity to it. First of all, there were a very limited number of countries, thank God, that had nuclear weapons. Secondly, if you launched it, you could go, somebody launched it, you could go into a big cave in uh, Colorado Springs and look up on the screen. You've all seen it in the movies and see where the weapon's coming from. You might not have very much time to respond, but you could see where it was. And you could establish deterrence because because you knew who was attacking you, you had a way to make it clear to them before they attacked what the penalty would be and that you would find them. And fortunately, we had no nuclear exchanges after... Nagasaki and after uh, Hiroshima, in part because we had worked out a system of deterrence that, sick as it may have been in mutually assured destruction, actually worked. For cyber, we don't have that. The nuclear analogies don't work. As I tell my students when we do this uh, at great length, uh, at the Kennedy School, all the questions that you would raise about how to deter a nuclear nuclear conventional war come up in cyber, and all the answers are different. Part of the reason it's different is that the adversary here is not necessarily just four or five states. States have cyber weapons, criminal groups have cyber weapons, drug lords have cyber weapons teenagers have cyber weapons of that group only one of them states actually sign treaties drug lords don't usually do it criminals don't usually do it and i don't know about your household but in my household teenagers certainly do not sign treaties and so, the old concept of trying to control this by having some kind of government to government agreement is somewhat ridiculous. And the fact that there is so much anonymity about who is launching a cyber attack means that lots of states can use this and cover their tracks. So, in the North Korea case, President Obama came to the press room the day before he left for Hawaii a year ago and declared it was the North Koreans and immediately was derided on the internet and on Twitter. People said, nah, it was two kids in South Carolina. No, it was some criminal group. No, it was somebody who had a grudge with Sony. No, it was a bunch of Sony insiders. There were a million conspiracy theories. And those kept on actually until we ran a story in mid-January of this year, which some of you may have seen, that described how the NSA had been up inside North Korea's computer systems for years, not because they were looking for cyber, but because they were looking at other bad things that North Koreans could do, and ultimately were able to go back and look anew at the data they had and saw the evidence in retrospect. But they didn't see it coming. In fact, the director of national intelligence had actually gone and had dinner with his counterpart in North Korea when he had flown to North Korea secretly one time to try to get two Americans uh, released successfully. And during that dinner, even though the uh, North Koreans were already into Sony, never raised the topic because they simply didn't know at the time. The North Koreans also stuck in with the bill for dinner, which seemed unfriendly, given the fact that he was a guest. Um, So this is part of the broader challenge that we have with cyber, which is that we don't really yet have a concept of how we would deter it. But the problem's worse than that, because we also are building up a huge cyber force before we have a theory about how we would use it. I said at the outset that US Special Forces are the favorite of every American president, because they're quick. They get in and out of of a country very quickly. They're incredibly effective. They don't stay around. You don't keep them there to be a target as you try to go rebuild a nation. And yet it's taken us a long time to go figure out what special forces are good at and what they're not good at. It's taken us a very long time to figure out how we want to go use drones. And it's taken us a long time because it took a while to discover that effective as the drone strike seemed to be, if over the long term you were building up the resentments of an entire population that grew to fear the sound of the drone attack coming, that over time you might actually create as many adversaries as you wipe out in a drone strike. Think about nuclear. Our entire strategy for how we use nuclear weapons has changed radically in the past 50, 60 years. General MacArthur was in this church more than once, wanted to go use those weapons against the Chinese and the North Koreans during the Korean War. Harry Truman had a different idea. During the Cuban Missile Crisis, we had a famous Air Force General who went in across the way, sat down with President Kennedy in the cabinet room and made the case about why we should use the moment to strike the Soviet Union. Yes, we might lose 60 million Americans at the time in retaliation, but at least the Cold War would be over. Fortunately, President Kennedy ignored his advice, and that's why we're all sitting here in this lovely building today. In cyber, we need a debate similar to the one that we had that followed the Cuban Missile Crisis. Remember, following the Cuban Missile Crisis, we had a very active movement, anti-nuclear movement, war nu- movement, a real change in strategic thinking, and we're down to the thought right now we would only use nuclear weapons as a matter of national survival. President Obama's done, I think, a Pretty effective job of de-emphasizing their use in American defenses. But in cyber we're only beginning to think about it. We're only beginning to think about what happens when we use the weapon and that opens the way for others to use it against us. And when it gets used against us it's not going to be used against the most hardened targets those utilities of the Defense Department, they may be targets as well, it's going to be used against the soft targets of the technology that we all depend on to run the economy. And that's the stock market, and that's your banks. And that may be manipulating water supplies, changing data. Imagine the chaos that could be caused, not by stealing data, but by going in and just altering your data. There are lots of ways to go bring an entire economy to a grinding halt using cyber, and we've only begun to imagine them. That's why I say that we're sort of where we were in the Wilbur and Orville to World War I days, where we're only beginning to imagine what happens when cyber intersects with the real world. Now the fact that this has come up so quickly may partly account for the fact that we haven't thought very much about how to deter its future use and how we want to go use it. Imagine this. When Congress gets that annual um, threat report, the major threats to the United States that comes out every January, Uh, they'll be getting it again in just a few weeks. If you go back to the 2007 report, just nine years ago, and you go back to read the cyber section, it's not going to take much out of your day. There was no cyber section in the 2007 intelligence agency threat assessments of the United States. It was all about terrorism, Iraq, Afghanistan, the Taliban, nobody had imagined the Islamic State yet. Cyber was nowhere to be found. For the past two years, it's been the number one threat. Imagine that. It's gone from not being there to being number one in a matter of seven years. So you can imagine why we're all struggling to catch up and think about this. And that takes us back to why Olympic Games was so interesting, and I'll end it on this so that we can have some time for some discussion. Olympic Games started because President Bush knew that after Iraq and after the false claims of weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, he couldn't step out and say another country was developing nuclear weapons. He also knew... He couldn't attack Iran or see the Israelis attack it because as Condoleezza Rice put it to him in a very different context one time when he wanted to send forces to Sudan, said, Mr. President, I think you have invaded your last Islamic country. And the president determined that she was right. And then a group of generals and intelligence officials came to the Oval Office They described this new American capability. They tried a test by building a complete mock-up of the Iranian facilities in Tennessee. They attacked it with uh, this nascent cyber weapon. When it began to blow up the centrifuges, they took the remnants of the centrifuges, flew them here, drove them through the northwest gate over there, dropped them out on the conference table in the situation room, invited the president down He had a response that I cannot repeat in a nice church like this, but you can imagine what it was. And that began America's first sophisticated cyber attack on another nation. But even after all the revelations about that attack, even after it became public in 2010, uh, that this virus was out, even after I wrote and others wrote in confront and conceal and stories have gone beyond about the decision making that went into it. The United States still can't acknowledge that it has a significant cyber capability. It's beginning to talk about the fact that there are 6,200 cyber special forces that they are developing up at Fort Meade and spreading out among the US military. There's obviously a much bigger support force behind that. But until we have that public discussion we can't come up with a way, a strategy to go use these. And that's important strategically, but I would argue since it's a Sunday and we are where we are, that that's important ethically as well. That if we don't begin to have an open debate about how we use this weapon, we're gonna see it used against us in ways that we would consider completely out of bounds against civilians in ways we would not, we would be hesitant to go use the weapon ourselves. So I think it's one of those cases where the government's reflexive secrecy, which grows out of the fact that this weapon came up not out of the military, not out of Warville and Wilbur, but actually out of the intelligence world and out of Silicon Valley. Our reflexive secrecy has gotten in the way of us having the kind of public debate that we had about nuclear, that we ultimately had about drones, that we've had about other weapons of war, how we want to use them, or those we don't want to use. We've already talked about what conclusion we came to on nuclear. We also don't use chemical weapons. We also got a pretty good ban on biological weapons. We haven't even begun to have that discussion on cyber. So I'll leave it at that so that we have some time for discussion, but I thank you for inviting me back, Clark. Uh, I thank you all for um, spending part of your Sunday morning when you'd probably be rather thinking about something a lot more pleasant to uh, hear about this, and I look forward to to your questions and, and your observations. Thanks very much.